This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're looking this morning at verses 24 through 32. Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. Hear the word of God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we study this passage for the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that as we think about these things, uh, they would not just stay in our minds as abstract ideas, uh, but that they would hit our hearts, Lord, as the truth, as the reality uh, about ourselves and about this world we live in and about the God, the holy God who reigns over it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. What does judgment look like? What does divine judgment, the judgment of God, look like? If you're like me, the images that come to mind are are fairly cataclysmic. We tend to think of things like the great flood that God sent on the world when it was so increasing in wickedness. 
Or we might uh, think of the fire and brimstone that was rained down by the Lord upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. We might think of the destruction of Jerusalem as the Lord acts against the sinfulness of his people and Jerusalem is taken by the Babylonians and uh, many of the people are taken off into exile. And the temple is in ruins, the city is in ruins. It tends to have a fairly apocalyptic, cataclysmic, violent uh, sense to it as we think about God's judgment, especially these past instances. And certainly those were the judgment of God, and we know that they are because the Scriptures tell us that they are, and that's why these things happened. Or we think of the judgment of God, we may think of the future, the judgment of God to come. We think of the, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, the day when every being who has ever lived will give an account to the Creator. And uh, those who are outside of Christ will stand on their own sinful and rebellious record. Those who are in Christ will be received into glory, not because we have a good record, but because our substitute, the Lord Jesus, has a good record. But as we talked about last time, Paul, in verse 18, doesn't say the wrath of God was revealed, although it was in the past. He doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed, although it will be the day of the Lord will come. He puts it in the present tense. For the wrath of God is revealed. You could also translate it, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So Paul is, is speaking of a present tense, kind of ongoing judgment of God in his own day. And as we read the scriptures, we would understand that. In the, as the present tense for our own day as well, that even in our own day, the wrath of God is being revealed. Well, the question is, how? How is God's wrath being revealed today? Well, if you watch the news, of course, the headlines uh, are almost daily made up of, of some disaster or another, at least part of them, uh, some disaster that's happened here or there, uh, either man-made or natural, and say, well, now, there is God acting in judgment on his creation. Can you be so sure? It's sort of difficult to read the events in our day in that way. In the past, we know, because the Bible says these things were done by God. Now, you may say, well, it's certainly not the blessing of God, although it may turn out to be. Uh, it's hard to say about these kinds of things that may take place today, whether they are specifically God acting in judgment against specific sins or not. It's very difficult to be certain about that. But the fact is, what Paul is referring about, the, uh, referring to, the judgment he is describing here, looks very different from the apocalyptic, from the cataclysmic, from the catastrophic. It's far more subtle. Because Paul is talking here about the judgment of God in a particular manifestation, the wrath of God being revealed in a certain way that may be different from what you might think. And if we wanted to sum it up, we could put it this way. Sin is often its own judgment. 
Sin is often its own judgment. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, before we start looking at the specifics, we want to look at this, this threefold refrain. God gave them up. God gave them up. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How so? Well, then he comes to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. The particular expression of his wrath, as Paul is describing it here, is God's giving sinful humanity up. God's giving us up to sin. Now, people have described, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that God gives up? Some have described it just as in God's order in this creation, sin has its consequences. Well, that's true. It does. Sin brings physical consequences, spiritual consequences, emotional, mental consequences, certainly relational consequences. There's no doubt about that. No one would argue with that. But is that what Paul's talking about here? Others have said, well, this is merely God's passivity. God just uh, just lets them sin. And there is an element to that of God's being passive in, in the face of human inclination to sin. There's certainly an element of that. Uh, God's allowing us to do what we want. But you can't read that statement. It is describing something God did, and it repeats it twice. So it's stated three times. God gave them up. God is actively responding to human sin by doing something. As someone described it, it's not merely that God lets the wagon roll down the hill. God gives it a good push first. So yes, God is passive in the sense he's letting us do something, but it's God acting to allow that to take place. We need to recognize that God's giving us up or giving us over to our sin is an active response of God to our sin in judgment on our sin. So that refrain is repeated. God gave them up. And we need to understand it that way, that this is God's action in the face of human rebellion and sin. Well, let's look at what he gave us up to. Uh, there, they, there's sort of just variations on a theme, really. There's no hard distinctions between the, the three of these, among the three of these. Verse 24, God gave us over to impurity. That's the word he uses here. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And he elaborates a little bit what he means to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So we could say he's describing, evidently, a sexual impurity. God allowing us, uh, causing us just to, to remain in and to give ourselves to sexual impurity. Why? Why sexual impurity? Well, Paul argues in another place that uh, sexual sin has a particular damaging effect. That it, it affects us, it, it hits us in a way that other sins don't. He argues all other sins a person commits are outside of the body. But sexual sin particularly is a sin committed within the body and against the body. It's personal, we could say, in a way that other sins are not. It strikes at our being, at our identity, because it's so personal and so relational. 
uh, in a way that that other sins just don't. And maybe that's particularly why this is singled out here. But notice, this is not arbitrary. This is, again, in response to sin. Verse 25, because God did this because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. He's just uh, sort of repeating what he said back in in uh, verse 23, where he exchanged the glory of God for images. Well, here, they exchanged the truth about God, all that God is, all that he's revealed himself to be to us in creation. As Paul just talked about the verses we looked at last week, that all of creation testifies to who God is, to the truth about God. Well, we exchange that for a lie, and uh, particularly a lie about our own sexuality. Boy, if any culture has believed a lie, it's ours in this whole area. Uh, to, to rebel against the truth about God and who he created us to be uh, as people and as males and females and just think we can plunge headlong and, and do with our sexuality anything we see fit and think that uh, we can do so with impunity, that there won't be consequences, is just to be deluded. It is absolutely to believe a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Why does Paul say that? Who is blessed forever? Well, for one reason, in the face of human rejection of who God is, Paul is saying God is, is, is the one who is blessed forever. But he's particularly saying that it doesn't matter how much we reject God's truth and reject God himself. God remains blessed. God is, is happy. God is not really touched by himself or sullied by our rejection of him. He remains in a state of blessedness forever. Our rebellion, our sin, our ignoring or rejecting him does not in any way diminish the blessedness, the happiness of God. But it does us, and God does respond to it. So that's the first thing we see here is he says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to the desires of our hearts, to impurity. He basically says, is that what you really want? Then I'm going to send you right into that. I'm going to give you over to that. I'm going to let you have what you think you want, to impurity, dishonoring our bodies, because we traded in the truth for a lie, a bad exchange. And people have been suffering and hurting and suffering consequences of it. Now, he gets a little more specific in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, again, sort of a variation on a theme. Impurity, dishonorable passions, there's not a whole lot of distinction. But here he singles out a particular form of sexual sin in verse 26. He says, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Why the women first? A lot of debate about that. I'm not sure we can really know for sure. Uh, maybe he's following the pattern of Genesis 3 that uh, Eve sinned first and then passed the fruit on to Adam. Uh, kind of doubt that. Probably, if, if there's any specific reason at all, other than you had to begin with, with one sex or the other, it may be just uh, that you might expect more modesty and propriety from women than you would from men. Is it sexist to say that? I don't know. Um, 
But maybe maybe he's shocked that that it, it's women who are involved in this as as well as the men. But at any rate, he had to start somewhere, and he specifically singles out that the word uses the words for female, for male, distinguishing by sex, male or female, and he refers to women. He says to exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Nature is understood understood as the creation of God, not nature as some abstract idea out there just what's usual of the way things are, but nature is God's creation, um, but that they exchanged the uh, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, to God's design. And then men also. Notice what he says. kind of traces this progression. Uh, on the one hand, they gave up natural relations with women, so they reject God's design. They were consumed with passion for one another, and they act on it, committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, obviously, he is speaking of homosexuality, no question about that. And obviously, he portrays that as being contrary to God's design for our sexuality. But why homosexuality? Obviously, a big, big issue, big topic in the headlines, big debate in our culture today. But why homosexuality? Why is why is that kind of Paul's paradigm for sin here? Well, I think there are several reasons. One, when Paul talks about exchanging the truth of God for idolatry, uh, very often uh, sexual practices were part of pagan worship. So when he talks about idolatry, he's thinking about their involvement in pagan religion that may well have involved sexual practices as part of their worship, um, and including homosexual practices as, as well. Another reason I think he singles this out is because in Greek and Roman culture, there was often not only a tolerance of homosexuality, but there was approval of it. In fact, there were even those who argued it was superior, in all kinds of ways, to heterosexual relationships. We need to recognize, especially in the culture in which we live, which says, well, we're enlightened. You know, Paul lived back in the Dark Ages, actually lived well beyond the Dark Ages, much earlier. Uh, you know, but today we, we understand these things better. We need to recognize Paul lived in a culture that sort of winked the eye at homosexuality, where there was, where it was practiced, it was known, it was indulged in, uh, and in some quarters even approved. So Paul was not just reflecting his culture when he writes this. Paul is swimming upstream. Paul is going against the grain of his culture in what he says here in Greek and, and Roman culture just as we are in our own culture. A third reason I think he, he refers to homosexuality here is not just because of its, you know, its involvement in pagan religion, not just because of its acceptance and approval in the culture, but because he's talking about sexual sin as sort of the, the heart of God's giving us over to our sin uh, because of the power of it, because of how it so fully affects us as human beings, but because homosexuality particularly is so contrary to God's design in a way that fornication or adultery in the normal sense of those terms is not. 
Those are sins, absolutely. Uh, to have sexual relations outside the context of marriage is to violate God's law and God's design. Or for a husband or a wife in a marriage to become involved with someone else outside of that marriage is a violation of God's design. But in the context of male-female relationships, there is, if, if I can say this without being understood, a normalcy to it. A man and a woman, they may be involved in a, a relationship that displeases God, but nevertheless, they're still at least physically and emotionally and so forth acting in a way that, that accords with God's design for our sexuality of a man and a woman. Whereas in homosexuality, that's not the case. You have two women, you have two men. So not only is there the element of sexual sin, but there is a turning upside down of God's design for our sexuality uh, of a man and a woman. And I think that's why Paul, for those three reasons, that Paul singles this out. Now, obviously, you know, I know, that this is a huge hot-button topic in our society today. Some of you may know the name Jennifer Keaton. Uh, she was just in the news uh, a week or two ago uh, uh, studying counseling at Augusta State University. And uh, she uh, was was being dismissed from the program because of her Christian views of homosexuality and her refusal to toe the party line in counseling, and so they dismissed her, and she sued, and a court upheld the school. We need to recognize that if we hold to a biblical view of sexuality, uh, and certainly homosexuality, that we increasingly are going to be going against the grain of our culture, and we need to be prepared to stand on the biblical truth of our sexuality in a loving and gracious way, but stand, nevertheless, possibly at cost to ourselves. I mean, increasingly, the person who says homosexuality is wrong, homosexuality is a sin, is going to sound to modern ears like someone who's saying, well, certainly, chattel slavery is a good thing. Um, yeah, Nazi Germany, uh, yeah, they had a good thing going. I mean, that, that shocks us, but increasingly, that's what you will sound like in our culture. When you say homosexuality is wrong, that'll be baffling. That will be offensive to many modern ears. We need to be prepared for that and, and realize the reality of that and need to be prepared to give a biblical defense for sexuality and against homosexuality that goes well beyond the yuck factor. Just saying, ugh, that's gross, is not going to be a convincing argument. We need to understand biblically and even in terms that would make sense to secular ears, why this is a bad thing. It's a bad thing, not just biblically, but socially, sociologically. It's, it's problematic, and we need to be prepared, as, Paul, as Peter says, to give a defense for the hope that was in, is in us, including in all of this. We also need to adamantly affirm, in a culture that takes opposition to homosexuality as hate, uh, that God is not calling us to hate homosexuals or people caught up in that lifestyle. Uh, we need to recognize they're not the enemy, that they are enslaved to sin, that they are in bondage to this sin, whether they are so in misery or whether they are so in apparent happiness, uh, that this too is sin, sin for which God in his grace sent the Lord Jesus Christ to free us from both the penalty and the power of sin. So we need to recognize, as the head of uh, Exodus International said in recent World Magazine, uh, the opposite of homosexuality is, is, is holiness, not heterosexuality. It's holiness. 
uh, whatever our desires are, whatever our impulses might be, God's call and his enablement and grace in Christ is holiness, obedience to him, Christ-likeness in, in all our lives. So that's the, the two things he's mentioned so far, God giving us up to impurity, sexual sin in particular, God giving over to uh, dishonorable passions, homosexuality in particular. But then in the third uh, instance of the refrain, he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is to to make God part of our thinking, to, to hold to the knowledge of God, God gave them up a third time to a debased mind. Now, here he speaks a little bit differently, uh, not just to our impurity, not just to uh, dishonorable behavior, but to a mind that, as he said earlier, is darkened, futile. You know, we've cast off the greatest fact of all, the knowledge of God, that God exists, that we are accountable to him, and try to function without that. In other words, feet firmly planted in midair. Now, with this barrage, Paul gets all of us. Now, unless we've been tempted to be smug about those who are caught in sexual sin or those who are involved in homosexuality, we need to recognize that Paul cuts a broad swath here. You know, he gets all of us. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, I don't want to give you know an extended exposition on each one of these words. They're, they're fairly obvious what they mean and what Paul is, is saying, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, all kinds of sin, evil, covetousness. You know, I've just got to have this. I've just got to have that. Not content with what God has given. Malice. You know, saying things against people that are hurtful. Doing things to people that are hurtful. He says in verse 29, they are full of envy. Murder whether literally or hating people in our hearts, strife, deceit, lying, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. What does he mean? It's not that they invent evil, it's that they invent new ways to carry out evil. They're creative in their perversity. Disobedient to parents. There's one you don't find in, in every list of what's wrong with children. We need to recognize the fifth commandment is very real. Honor your parents and the Lord. Uh, disobedient to parents. That disobedience is a sign of that sinfulness and uh, God giving over to sinfulness. Foolish, faithless, Heartless. The word heartless has the idea of uh, a heart that, that rejects family relationships. The word he used there is, is, is a negation of a word for family love. Storge is a Greek word. Family love. Love of brothers and sisters. Love of parents for children. Love of children for their parents. Uh, but this is gone. And it may have a specific reference to the practice of parents abandoning their children, leaving them out, exposing them. And, and Christians would take their children in that were abandoned and raise them as, as covenant children. Heartless to, to a mother to leave her child to die. Ruthless. 
So we go through this list. There's some overlap. Paul's just giving this long list. There's not just a specific meaning for each one. Some of them do overlap. But the, the point is, he's covering as broad a range as he can think of to say that sin in our hearts is itself the judgment of God. And it may not be sexual sin. It may be, but it may be other kinds of sin as well. Gossiping, rudeness, lack of love, pride, greediness, envy. There's not a one of us that escapes this list somewhere, and usually in any number of instances. That's what he's saying. God gave us over to a depraved mind, and when we exclude the knowledge of God, that's what it looks like. Even as Christians, when we sin, we are acting in a way that excludes or shuts aside, uh, sets aside the knowledge of God in that instance. We're living in a godless way. But then notice how he finishes. Verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. What does he mean? Well, he's saying kind of what he said earlier, that that we know enough about God from creation itself to be without excuse. And most of us have been exposed to God's word one way or another, especially in our country, although increasingly those who have no knowledge of the scriptures, where God specifically speaks to these things. Then we know it's wrong, even apart from the scriptures. And as Paul will argue in in Romans 2, God's law is written on our heart as human beings. There's a sense, it's innate sense of right and wrong, whether we've ever heard the Bible or not. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. There is something innate in us that knows what is wrong and knows what is right, whether we're Christians or not. Though they know that, they not only do those things, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, that's sort of a puzzling climax. I mean, Paul apparently has reached the worst thing of all, and and he says it's not only they do it, but they approve of people who do it. And you kind of go, really? But if you stop and think about it, you'll recognize that, that even beyond doing these things, people and even a society that approves of these things is the most wicked and frightening of all. Listen to the words of John Murray. Murray was a professor of systematic theology at at Westminster Seminary for about the first 30 years of its existence. Um, And this is what he writes. And I give it to you because I think he absolutely captures this very well. This whole thing of the, the why the approval is so bad. Here's what he says. However severe has been the apostle's delineation of the depravity of men, he has reserved for the end the characterization which is the most damning of all. It is that the consensus of men in the pursuit of iniquity, the most damning condition is not the practice of iniquity, however much that may evidence our abandonment of God and abandonment to sin. It is that together with the practice, there is also the support and encouragement of others in the practice of the same. To put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. We hate others as we hate ourselves, and render therefore to them the approval of what we know merits damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated 
when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others, and when there is collective, undissenting approbation, that is, approval. Much of the mainline church approves of homosexuality. It sees it as the loving, compassionate thing to do when in fact it is merely approving them in that which brings the wrath of God. Can there be anything more demonic, more satanic, than to approve someone in that which leads to hell? That's what Paul is saying here. That's why it's so frightening that our society increasingly approves of homosexuality. God, in his wrath, gives them over to their sin. But it's not just that sin. It's disobedience to parents. It's pride. It's envy. It's malice of God sending a people on their own sinful, evil, wicked, destructive way. That is the terrifying judgment of God. But is it permanent? Is Paul saying that God does this, he gives them up to, to, to their sin for a time, or is he saying he gives them up for all time? Well, he doesn't really address that. As you look at the scriptures, you see both. Think of Isaiah 19:22. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Is this temporary to put us in distress that he might drive us to the cross? Or is it final? God giving us over to our reprobation, to plunge headlong into hell. I'll leave that question for you to think about, but we need to wrestle with it, not just in the abstract, but in a personal sense. Because, dear friends, for you, it can be temporary. I hope it has been temporary. Because we go back to what Paul said earlier in this chapter, that the righteousness of God is revealed by faith in the gospel, precisely because the wrath of God is being revealed. Again, this is the bad news that makes the gospel good news. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It is available to you, the forgiveness of these sins, and the righteousness of Christ to make you fit to come into the presence of God is being revealed, and it's received by faith precisely because the wrath of God is being revealed. Dear friends, your sin is not freedom. Your sin is evidence of God's wrath. Turn from your sin. Do not see your sin as liberty, as freedom, as you getting to do what you want. See your sin for the evil that it is. Don't presume. I can sin today and turn to Christ tomorrow. God may give you over to that sin today. Flee to Christ now. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, it is available, and it is to be received by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a sad passage. It is a hard passage. It is a frightening passage. But, Lord, we pray that in your grace you would not give us over to sin. 
but that you would open our eyes and make alive our hearts to the gospel, the good news of your grace in Christ. Lord, that Jesus would be the one who would be condemned for those sins that are ours and that we might be wrapped in his perfect righteousness and received into the joy and the blessedness of your presence in heaven. Father God, have mercy in wrath. Show mercy, Lord, that we might be saved, that we might be with you. And Lord, help our lives to bear witness not to the sinfulness of sin, but to the joys of salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.